Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. We have been six weeks in this series called The Birds and the Bees. And what we've tried to do over this six-week time is we've tried to really articulate, especially over the last five weeks, uh, what it is that we should be thinking and how we should be believing what the Bible says about this issue of Christian sexuality and, and all of that how it plays in our normal day-to-day life. And so we've really tried to articulate and land on the spaces that we land on clearly. And if you're confused about any of that, or if you're just, if this is your first Sunday, God bless you. I love you. You came on just kind of like the end of a weird time that we've been in, a good time, but just an odd Sunday to pick for visiting a church. But I'm, I'm glad you're here, honestly. I would go back. I can't rehash all of it. So go back and watch the series online if you want to. Today, simply what I want to do is, as we've articulated what we believe, now I want to talk today about how we're going to behave. Because the difference in so many uh, practices that we would have is not just believing right things, but actually behaving in a kind of way that would make us look distinct in the world we're living in. It is not just enough to have right belief. We also have to have right practice. Even James, the half-brother of Jesus, right? Half-brother, Holy Spirit, Mary, you get that. Joseph, Mary, James, Jesus. Do we understand the family tree there joke that I just made? Anyways, that was maybe not a good joke. I'll take that out of my notes. Never to say again. Um, Even James writes down, if you have faith, but you don't have works, your faith is a dead faith that cannot save you. And so if our belief, if we have right theology, but it doesn't get displayed then in practice, we're missing it. We're missing it. And so today, as as simply, but as clearly as I can, I want to try to articulate where we go from here as a church. If we know what, how we think, and if we know what the Bible says, how is it that we are going to behave and live in the world that we're living in? And, and make no mistake, and no surprises here, we're gonna look at Jesus as our template of how to behave. Because Jesus, if we're honest, he's just kind of a walking conundrum, isn't he? Like the crowds and the kinds of people that Jesus ends up rolling with, it should surprise us on some level. Because he has sermons that he's preaching and the kids wanna hang out with him, but he's also got fishermen that are trying to follow after him. And I, I, like, I, I grew up, uh, my dad was a tradesman. I hung around tradesmen. Tradesmen, they just kind of speak in a certain kind of way. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like all sorts of expletives that I can't mention up here on stage and probably shouldn't mention in my vocabulary ever, right? But I just got to imagine that fishermen, that, that the guys, the shepherds, that he was drawing this crowd of followers, they had a certain way of living, but yet they were drawn to this person, Jesus, It's not just that, but it's also like, I mean, the story of of, uh, Mary breaking out the expensive ointment and pouring out her perfume. Mary was a a woman of the night. So if we're curious about what her profession was, right? I'll just let you all figure that out on your own. She's a woman of the night and she's doing that in a Pharisee's house while Jesus is having dinner with all of them. I mean, that that is just like the punchline beginning of, of a really bad joke, isn't it? So the Pharisee, the prostitute, and Jesus, the king of the world, walked into a room and started eating a meal together, right? (laughs) Who is this guy? Who is this guy that a thief defends him on his dying, uh, in his dying moments on a cross? Who is this guy that that has crowds of people following him? And in one moment, he'll say, just because you can't eat of my flesh and drink my blood doesn't mean you can follow me. And, And people will just, they'll leave him because they can't understand what he's trying to say. This, he's, he's our template though, and he's who we look to. He's a conundrum for sure, but he's also the person that we are called to emulate. It isn't just that we're called to look like him, but he gives us a pretty clear instruction on how we're to roll out our behavior after following after him. 
So he's being quizzed one time. He says, they say, teacher, what's the, what's the greatest commandment? He's like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the other is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is basically the recap of commandments one through four. Love your neighbor as yourself is the recaps of commandments five through 10. So when they're like, which one's the greatest? Jesus just says, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yep. And he also doesn't just give us that as the instruction on which of these teachings, which of the rules is the greatest, but he also says in his departing words from this earth, he says, go therefore, make disciples, make followers after me, people who will surrender their life to me, follow after me and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have taught you. So we go in the authority of Jesus into the world that we're living in to represent him correctly, to make disciples and followers, not after some other, any other thing other than just him. We're trying to, the best we can do is proclaim him. We can't control whether or not people believe, but we do control how much we talk about belief, how much we talk about what we believe, how much we share the gospel with those around us. That is completely within our control. And yet it's been my experience in my own life and probably in some of your lives, if we're honest this morning, that even though we know about the greatest commandment, even though we know about the great commission, we still fail in practice to do these things consistently, don't we? It's difficult. It's difficult in the world we're living in. And there's a reason why it's difficult. And I wanna unpack that for us today. But ultimately I wanna land with some kind of marching orders for the church. If we just did this six week series how is it that we're gonna walk out of here with a kind of vision that's different than maybe we started this journey with? We see probably really clearly who Jesus is in the gospel of John. All the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all bring, they're all telling one story. It's the story of Jesus, but they're all told through different people. And so naturally, as they're following Jesus around, they're, they're gleaning and they're writing down different aspects of this person, Jesus. John is this friend of Jesus. And so he's writing, like he's writing about one of his best friends, his, his buddy, his beloved brother. And when John opens up his gospel, he says, in the beginning was the word and the with, word was with God and the word was God. And he starts unpacking for us this, this magnificent, magnificence and comprehensiveness of Jesus Christ, that he's not just some person, but he's actually God incarnate, put on flesh to dwell amongst us. And this is where we get to the part in John 1, 9. If you have your Bible, you can open it. We'll read it together. John 1, starting in verse 9. John says, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him, adding to the conundrum. And he's the author of everything. He made it all. He made these people and that yet the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own and yet his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of the will of God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. We now understand the characteristics of God. God's glory is his character, his DNA put forth into the public sphere. And so now we get to see this picture of who God really is in the person and work of Jesus. We've seen his glory, glory of the only son from the father, full of, what are those last few words? Grace and truth. Jesus, the way that he walks so brilliantly on this earth, I will argue today is that he's full of both grace and truth. And so our marching orders, as we live in a sexually broken world, as we live and interact with people who don't know nothing of Jesus, who aren't interested in the message of Jesus, 
Maybe we interact with some people who are warm to the idea of Jesus as their savior, but they certainly don't want Jesus as their Lord. They want to keep him more of like a Jesus as my homeboy kind of relationship. But submit and surrender, that's language that is foreign to people. Maybe you interact with people that it's like, listen, you just believe what you want to believe. But as soon as your beliefs start to infringe on me as a person, that's when we're going to have a problem together. This is all too familiar, right? But Jesus walks in a way where he's full of grace and full of truth. So how are we going to do it? I think it's difficult for us to do because fundamentally, I think our, word, our world misunderstands and misappropriates what the definition of both grace and truth really is. So grace, what we receive it as in the world we're living in today is you either accept me for all of who I am or you reject me completely. We have this undertow of grace that says, man, grace would just, you would just let me keep being who I know that I'm supposed to be. You would just keep, let me persisting in this behavior. You'd accept me, you'd affirm me, and you just let me keep on in this behavior if you would be gracious to me. And yet I wonder if that's what the grace of Jesus actually looks like. Is the grace of Jesus totally affirming of people? Is the grace of Jesus totally turning a blind eye to behavior? I would argue that the grace of Jesus Christ, what makes it distinct, if we understand grace and mercy, two sides of the same coin. Mercy is not giving someone something that they do deserve. If, I, if I've broken the law, I've been going 50 and a 35 on Madison. That never happened, by the way, before. It's never happened in my life. But this one time I did get pulled over by a, a, a very nice police cop on a motorcycle, right? And he wrote, he wrote me a ticket. He was not merciful. The mercy move would have been, yeah, you were going to 50, you were going 50 and a 35. And I know you're going that fast because you were listening to worship music. True story. Okay, I really was. I was singing at the top of my lungs. Didn't realize how fast I was going. And he was like, you idiot, you're going too fast. And I was like, could you be merciful? And he was like, not today, sorry. <laughs> he gave me what I deserved, right? Grace, on the other hand, is extending something that we couldn't have earned on our own. So I would argue that the grace of Jesus Christ, what it has the distinct ability to do is to meet somebody exactly where they're at. And to show you that, I want to turn to John chapter 8. So if you have your Bible, you can flip just a few pages over or you can just scroll, you know, a few chapters over to John chapter 8. I, I think a lot of us are familiar with this story, but I want the weight of it to, to fall on us this morning as we've been talking about sexual brokenness, as we've been talking about this kind of sin. And we, if we can imagine what this would have been like in the moment, right? John chapter eight, verse one says, they went each to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. So let's maybe just use our imagination for a sec. Let's just pretend the temple is this church. And let's just say it's early in the morning on Sunday morning and Jesus comes on in and he's gonna start teaching. A crowd gathers, he's teaching. And as he's teaching, as he's teaching them, the scribes and the Pharisees bring a woman who's been caught in adultery and they place her in the midst. The horror of this moment for this woman, she's been caught in the act of adultery. So you can kind of use your own imagination, maybe not too much of your imagination, but just to imagine what this scene really looks like and what it feels like. I'm guessing she's drugged there against her own will. I'm guessing she's partially clothed or not clothed at all. And she's embarrassed. She's filled with shame. They've completely dehumanized her in this moment, as we'll see in a sec. But they bring her into the middle of the temple and they start to accuse her. They drug her in. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Notice how the Pharisees actually have no interest in her humanity. They're only interest in their own agenda to bust Jesus. 
They've totally robbed this woman of all the dignity and the image bearing of God that she possesses to bring her in as a, as a pawn, as a tool for their motivation, not for her own good. It's also interesting to note that in the law of Moses, the man and the woman would have been guilty of sin and, and the just punishment would have been being stoned. Not, okay, not Colorado stoned. We get that, right? It's, it's like pelted with rocks until they died, Okay. Poorly timed joke, maybe, but that's just, this is who I am. We lost an hour of sleep. I'm very tired, okay? <laughs> the law of Moses said they, they both should have brought in, been brought in. They bring this woman, only her. They're not interested in, in her good at all. They're not interested in, in really justice even at all. What they're interested in is trying to use her as a tool to get to Jesus. Jesus won't be anybody's tool, turns out. They said this to test him. And Jesus, he bends down in the sand, in the dirt, and he wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, I just, you know, Jesus is so awesome. He's so awesome. He's doodling down in the sand. You know what I mean? He's just drawing some little picture or whatever. Whatever he's doing, we don't know. And they just keep asking. They keep like trying to nail him, trying to say, hey, you know, isn't this, isn't this woman busting? Shouldn't we start stoning her? And he just says, hey, you know what? Why don't you let him who's without sin be the first among you to throw a stone at her? Whoever, whoever is guiltless, whoever's spotless, whoever's blemish-free, you throw the first stone. And he goes back to drawing. He's just kind of like, I don't care about you guys. He just keeps drawing. And notice what it says. Once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it or when they perceived it, when they understood what he was doing, they started to go away one by one, beginning with the older ones. There's lots of conjecture around what Jesus was writing in the sand, but we don't honestly know. It doesn't say in the Bible. I kind of like to entertain the thought that maybe he was writing out their mistress's names. He was writing down the names of the women that they had been unfaithful with. And especially as the older ones started to perceive what was happening, they're the ones that left first, maybe because they had more names to write down than the younger ones did. I don't know. But he's writing down something in the ground and one at a time, these men who are trying to berate and rob this woman of her dignity start to leave one at a time. Jesus, you gotta imagine this woman's been crying. She's probably just a mess. Imagine him, I imagine Jesus picking up her face, looking right at her and say, woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Notice in this moment, she's got to be feeling that the, the punishment that was due to her under the law was being stoned, being pelted with rocks. That was what was right in the eyes of the law. That's what would have been just in this moment. So he says, woman, where are your accusers? She says, there are none. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, so neither do I condemn you. And from now on, go and sin no more. The grace of Jesus is so powerful that it meets this woman in the moment of her sin. It meets her in the middle of her brokenness. Doesn't ask her to get cleaned up first. He doesn't start reciting the law. He doesn't start telling her what things that she has broken to get herself into this moment. No, he just simply meets her there in this moment. And he doesn't also, notice this, he doesn't, he doesn't skirt around the fact that she's been caught in sin. This is powerful. There is no receiving grace without acknowledging sin. If there's no sin, there's no need for grace. If there's nothing that you've done wrong, there's no need for a free pass. But Jesus says, you have done, you've been busted. I can see that you're broken in this. And he says, so go from here because you have no one to condemn you in this moment and sin no more. Don't persist in this behavior. So the grace of Jesus Christ meets us exactly where we are at in our humanity, but it loves us too much to let us continue living in that lifestyle. That's true grace. Meeting us in our humanity, 
but asking us to quit living in that same direction, to turn and go a different way. That's grace. We have a huge misunderstanding for grace. It's not just affirming and blindly accepting everything about a person. It's saying, no, we all have aspects of us that are broken and we're in need of Jesus's love to meet us in those moments and to say, now stop, let's go a different direction from here because he's trying to usher us into the full version of life. So now we get to truth. Truth, grace and truth. Jesus lives full of grace and truth. Truth is one of those things that again, in our day and age has been completely flip turned on its head. So now I heard a pastor say this last week, truth is no longer something that is external and fixed. It is now something culturally that is internal and fluid. So truth is just something that I get to decide is what culture will say. I get to just dictate my emotional experience, what I've perceived, what I think, what I believe, what I feel. That is what gets to define truth. And it's completely backwards. We haven't talked about transgenderism at all in this series. And that, you know, we've only had six weeks. We can't touch everything. But at this point now, if somebody were to come to a counselor, and even I'll say in the state of Colorado, if a 13-year-old walks into a counselor's office and says, I don't feel like I belong in my body, what they're experiencing is the medical term known as gender dysphoria. They don't feel as if their body and the sex of their body, their, their genetic sex aligns with what they actually feel like they are. Now, rather than us acknowledging what is true or not true, what the counselor has to say in the state of Colorado is, well, let's seek some sort of action to see to it that you can live out what gender you feel like you are today. And this has led to all kinds of brokenness, obviously, right? In school restrooms, in sports, in all sorts of different things where people get to do things based on how they feel, even though we know God has made two genders. God has made two genders. And and it's, it's not mysterious as to which one you are. But rather than being able to help people with what is true, culture has now required that we, we just entertain this, this pain or this hurt or whatever it is that's causing this person to feel this way. And we don't address the actual problem. Rather, we just go, hey, why don't you just do whatever you feel? And what's resulting now is countless stories of people who have had trans procedures, had parts removed or different things. And they're saying, I'm still broken because you didn't actually fix anything because the problem that was going on in your heart before is wherever you are, there you are. It's the problem is the sin within us, the brokenness within us, the hurt that's within us. But if we can't deliver the truth to people, then we can't help them. But truth has become this completely flipped around thing where now I just get to articulate what it is that I feel and I believe. And that becomes the the going story of the day. But Jesus's truth is different Jesus shows us that truth is not internal and fluid. Uh, Truth is external and it is fixed. John, we'll go to John chapter 14 now. Jesus is talking, he's teaching some of his disciples. I love the humanity of this moment too. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. that That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Jesus is talking about heaven someday. He's like, where I'm going to go, you're going to be there too. I'm preparing a place for you and you know how to get there. And I just, I love Thomas's answer. He's like, Lord, I have no flipping idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Don't you love the honesty right here? Yeah. Usually the disciples are like, Jesus is teaching. He's, he's doing some sort of sermon. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. Amen, pastor. That's amazing. And then they come like sideline. They're like, Jesus, I don't know what that just meant that you just said. And he's like, okay, here we go. This is like, this is like getting towards the end of Jesus' life. They've been with him a little while. And he's like, you know, you know how to get to where I'm going. And Thomas is like, bro, no, I do not. <laughs> Help a brother out, please. 
Could you like write it down, put it into Siri, into Google Maps for me or something like that? Help me get there. Jesus said to him, listen, Thomas, imagine him just like grabbing his face. I am the way. Me, Jesus, I am the only way to get to that place that I've been talking about going. I am the only way into flourishing life. I am the only way into abundant life. I am the only way into eternal life. It's me through me. He doesn't just say I'm the way though. He says, I am also the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. He's not just saying what's true is just measurable facts in the universe. What Jesus is pointing at, he's pointing at the actual reality that substantiates those facts. Jesus says, I am the most real thing. I I am the truth that all other things are built off of. I made everything. I've defined how it all works. I am the ultimate supreme authority on every matter of all time for forever. I am the truth. I articulate it. I define it. It's not that he's just saying, hey, this little fact in this story about Jesus is true. That, that happens. But what Jesus is saying is like, no, but all of the reality underneath that story, that's me. I am the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life that nobody comes to the Father except through me. Is religion, is Christianity, I'm sorry, is Christianity exclusive? Yeah, absolutely. There's only one way into eternal life. That's through the person of Jesus Christ. But the invitation is broad. The invitation goes out to everybody. But the Bible also says very clearly that wide is the path that leads to destruction and narrow is the road that leads to life and few will find it. So we live in this world that's completely disjointed when it comes to truth, following after whatever they want to believe, following after whatever we want to pursue. But Jesus in the meantime says, no, no, I'm the path that leads to life. It's me. It's my teachings. It's how I taught about life. It's how I created everything. Come to me. What makes this so difficult when you're interacting with somebody, especially within the LGBTQ community, and whenever you're interacting with somebody, the reason that it is so difficult to convince them that Jesus is the truth is because what we have done in the world that we're living in today is we have taken something that is actually just behavioral and we've actually stuffed it down into an identity level part of who we are. So, so being gay is no longer just something that you do, but it's someone that you are. Being trans, not fitting in your own skin, feeling like you don't belong with the gender in your body. It is not just something that you have in your mind, but it is now something that you are. I identify this way. And listen to me, this is a great way that you can have conversation with your friends and the people that you love that are in this community right now. Is You don't even have to start with sin. Point to the fact that anything that is placed at the identity level of who you are immediately makes you a slave to that thing. So if you say, my identity is this behavior, you are now a slave to however many partners you have, how much love you find, how much fulfillment you find in that sexuality. You become a slave to the reciprocating side of anything that you stuff down into your identity. Do you get this? If I put all my identity on being the pastor of this church, do you know who I'm automatically a slave to? You all. Now, I have to turn to you for my worth. I have to turn to you for my value. I have, I have to look at you to see if I'm fulfilling my purpose. That can't hold my identity. Just like sexual behavior cannot hold your identity. If you put all of your identity in being a father, in being a husband, man, praise God if you are those things, but, but it can't hold your identity. Those things are temporary. They can be taken from you. You, you will be turning to your wife. You will be turning to your kids for all of your fulfillment, for all of your worth, for all of your value. And not only can you not hold that, but your kids can't hold that either. No, but here's the beautiful thing. 
when we turn to Jesus to say, God, would you define who I really am? Can, can, I, can I have my identity? Can I, can I bring it to the feet of Jesus and completely surrender it to you? And now all of a sudden, Jesus says, you were made in the image of God. I have beautiful plans for your life, plans for good, not for evil. He says, hey, but also you have fallen short of the glory of God. And so Jesus acknowledges that we have sinned, but the good news is that even though we were dead in our trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2, God has made us alive together now in Christ. That's our identity. Made in the image of God, fallen creatures, chose our own way, met by the grace of God, saved by the grace of God. And now he says, now you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are heirs, fellow heirs, sons, daughters, beloved children of the king of the universe. Do you notice that as soon as I make that my identity, which by the way, what does Paul call himself in Romans chapter one? I, Paul, a bond servant of Christ. He's coming to him for his identity. Now, what can you take from me? You, you get to become like Paul. Paul. Paul just has this savage dealing with people where they're like, well, we're gonna kill you. He's like, well, you know, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm like, well, okay, never mind. We can't, I guess we can't kill you. We'll just toss you in prison then. He's like, great. I'll sing to your jailer, sing to your guard, set them all free. And I'll, you know, the angel of the Lord will break me out anyways. Like, what do you take from Paul? You can't, you can't get him at all. Uh, like, they're like, fine, we'll just take all your stuff. I don't con consider the light momentary afflictions of this world worthy to compare of that which is in Christ, you know? Because his identity is this bedrock now. He, he has placed in his identity that I belong to Jesus. And now he is a slave to Jesus, which is the best possible thing that could happen to any single one of us. Because his vision for your life, I promise you, is better than your version and your vision for your life could ever be on your own. He has beautiful plans for you. He loves you deeply. He cares for you. He'll lead you into different paths so that you would stay away from danger, be brought away from different behaviors that are harming you. Jesus loves you. Let him define who you are because he created you. He has wonderful plans for your life. If we let people persist in putting different things inside their identity than that, you will watch as time and time again, it will always fail them. Whether it's money, whether it's power, whether it's relationships, whether it's their sexuality, it cannot hold the weight of your eternal soul. So that is what we see as truth. Now I think I start to ask the question like, okay, so then how is it that we're to behave? If Jesus shows us this countercultural view of grace and truth, what does that mean for us as we go and we live out in the world? Well, I think Paul writes this really short, concise letter to this guy named Titus. And I think it's got just some wonderful application for us as a church. As Paul's writing to Titus, Titus is, he's going as a missionary to this island of Crete, okay? And Crete by their own, the Cretans by their own definition are liars, they're swindlers, and they're super lazy, and Paul's like, that's the testimony about them. And it's true. <laughs> like that, it's in your Bible. Titus chapter one. It's like, he's, he's pretty much like, these guys are the worst. All right, good luck, Titus. God bless you, you know? And what he's doing then is he's starting to give Titus some, some ways that he's gonna live out in the broken world that he finds himself witnessing in. It's a lot like you and I today. Titus is called to go and be a missionary to a, a world that is sexually broken, filled with people who don't know what truth is. And they are constantly flip turning life upside down on its head, pursuing after their own way. Paul's like, I've got some ideas on how you could do it, Titus. Let me tell you. He starts in Titus chapter two. He says, hey, one of the things that you have to have is a non-negotiable. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Notice we've been talking about this for the last several weeks. This should not be a surprise. 
One of Paul's first encouragement to Titus has been one of my encouragements to us over these last few weeks. Pursue your own sexual integrity first. So where do we go as a church from here? We start by continually making sure that we are pursuing our own sexual integrity with Christ first. He says, make sure that you're a model of good works and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech so that it cannot be condemned. And that if an opponent at any time has something to slander against you, he, your opponent will be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. You wanna be a good witness in the public square? Make sure that you first are pursuing after a life of obedience to Christ. Not in perfection, grace-driven, grace-empowered, all the more being transformed, conformed into the image of the Son. That's how we start. That's template number one. In Titus chapter two, starting in verse 11, he keeps going to say, it says, for the grace of God has appeared. It's, it's this revelation of the grace of God. It's appeared. Now we all of a sudden understand that we have fallen short of God's uh, mark and we need grace to be saved bringing salvation for all people. That awareness, that revelation of grace is what brings about salvation, by the way. And so again, uh, back to my point, if you never, exper if you never experience or, or are confronted with what sin is, you will never be able to experience the revelation of grace. So he says that grace has appeared, bringing salvation to people, training us now, that grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to, pur and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The second instruction that he gives, pursue your own sexual integrity, right? He says, pursue your own integrity. Make sure your teaching is above reproach. Make sure you cannot be condemned or slandered by people who lob things against you. But also he says, like, go out there and make sure that you are exhorting and rebuking people with all authority. Let no one disregard you. What is Paul saying here? He's like, Timothy, or Titus, go out there and stand on what you know to be true. You have the truth. You have the way that is correct. Go and stand and represent that truth. Paul never, never would have seen Titus's faith as something that was meant for the church, but divorced from the public square. It was always meant to go out and to represent Jesus well to other people, to the Cretans who weren't following after Jesus. He says, go and witness to them. Watch your own character first, but then also stand on what you know to be true. Exhort, rebuke, tell people the right way to live. We have to be bold to share the gospel. We can't have moments where we're going, oh, okay, you know, this person's persisting in this kind of behavior. I just don't really want to confront them at risk of losing the relationship. Well, guess what? Relationship or not, if you have somebody that's persisting in a way of living that is contrary to the word of God, it is their soul that's at stake, not just your relationship. And I just want to remind you of that this morning. I know there are some of you in here today, as we've talked about this series, there are so many stories of not just the policies that are scary out there or all the different ways that our culture is moving. But what we're talking about are real people that sit at your table probably at Thanksgiving dinner. People that you love, people that you care about. And, and in all of us at times when we're confronted with sin, I know that my reaction sometime when I see sin or when I'm brought into the presence of sin, sometimes, honestly, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that's gonna get on my kids. I'm afraid that's gonna get on me, that it's gonna impact my family in some way. And so that fear oftentimes presents itself as anger. It, listen, guys, especially, you're angry all the time. You might wanna start asking yourself, what are you really afraid of? Because the, 
that anger, that is really driven by what is causing fear in me. The other way that I'll react if sin starts to press in close is I, I, I want to kind of bow out. I want to leave it to go, nope, okay, that's between that person and God. I'm not going to confront that behavior. But again, just like the woman caught in adultery, that's not how Jesus, Jesus views his grace. No, he meets the people in that moment to say, where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus, Jesus has this ability and we have to have it too, to stand on what is true, to speak to people right where they're at and say, listen, brother, sister, with all humility, this way of living is not bringing you into flourishing life. And we have to confront what we know to be true. But then he ends in Titus 3 with this. He says, remind them, remind them, the young people, the young men, the zealous men in your church, be, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, which is just, that's a challenging word and a good word for all of us. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. Listen to this part, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Titus, how are you going to interact with those guys who lie all the time? They cheat you out of everything and they just don't even know what truth is. Be perfectly courteous towards them. That's a challenging word. I think of all the different things that we need to be pressed on as a church during this series, it wasn't articulating what is true. We all know what the Bible says. We need to be challenged in being perfectly courteous towards those people, those people that we disagree with because that's harder, isn't it? To be perfectly courteous. For we ourselves, how do you be courteous? You recognize this fact. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So that's where we were. And if you don't start with that acknowledgement of where you were in your own story, you're never gonna be able to extend that grace to somebody else. You're never gonna be able to meet them with kindness or perfect courtesy because you're gonna be so locked in how awesome you think you are. But we have to start there. I, I know I was once foolish, disobedient, golly. It, it, I'm so thankful you guys don't get to know the track record of mistakes I've made in my life. I'm so thankful I don't get to know the track record of mistakes you've made in your life. We've made them. But listen to this, starting in verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And because of works done by us in righteousness, but, and he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus, our savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. How are we gonna operate as a church going forward from the series? We're gonna keep coming back to the grace and mercy and kindness of God that we all desperately need ourselves. And we're gonna step out of this church and we're gonna represent Jesus well by standing on the truth that he communicates in the Bible. We're gonna do that with kindness and with mercy and tenderness and perfect courtesy we're gonna do it also with boldness and conviction that we know what is true. God's way is always best. And so we have to be willing to speak. We have to be willing to go out there and share. All the while, what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be pursuing constantly our own sexual integrity. Because far be it from us, if we're witnessing well, if we're proclaiming the truth, we're doing it with kindness, but we're, we're neglecting the log that's in our own eye the whole time and we're just being hypocrites. Listen to me, church, there... There are so many things out there that I find just terrifying right now about this subject. You look at what's going on in our school districts, what's, what's being masked around, keeping secret, that's being paraded in front of our kids. It, it is a dark time that we are living in right now, isn't it? And the way that we're going to witness 
is we're going to keep on pursuing our sexual integrity, standing on what we know is true, showing people the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ in loving kindness. So we're going to go out and vote, do different things. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Like, we, like listen, I don't know if I need to remind you of this. 2024 is, is next year. It's going to be another election year. Won't that just be so fun for us as a church again? I hope you vote and I hope you vote with your values. I hope you represent well because there are, there are laws and there are things that are out there right now in the public square that we need to be aware of and we need to press into. But we can never just settle for legislative victory. Should we pursue it? Amen, yes, absolutely. Don't hear, don't misconstrue what I'm saying right now. Let's fight for it. Somebody in this church, please run for school board this next year. Get on to different boards, different run for different public offices. Get on your HOA board for all I care. Like go represent Jesus well in some place of influence somewhere. We can't just settle for legislative victory. We have to also recognize that all the legislation could go our way in the next few years. It's, hey, by the way, it's probably not going to. It's probably gonna get a lot worse before it gets any better. But even if everything went our way, we have to keep in mind, this is an eternal conversation. Even if all the laws went a certain way, people could still be damned to hell without the grace, mercy, and love of Jesus Christ. So we have to be compelled to go and share the gospel. We're gonna to move to a time of communion because I can't think of any better way to kind of launch us from here than looking at that grace and mercy of Jesus right in the eye and considering it for ourselves. So if you grabbed communion on your way in, I wanna just say a prayer before we begin communion. Uh, if you're a visitor or a guest with us this morning, I'm so glad you're here and you don't have to be a member of our church to receive communion with us. My only ask is that you would do this as, a, as an abiding Christian this morning, that you would be doing this uh, with Jesus, not just for what it is, elements in your hands. We'd actually see this as a moment where you get to encounter Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. My encouragement is this as we move into time of communion. I really felt pressed this week that I, I know, I know, I know for some of you, this series has been really hard. You've had some things confronted in you. You've had some conversations with people you love that have been really difficult. You've had some things with the Holy Spirit's pressed in and sometimes conviction just stings and you just, you want a moment to lead it somewhere and let that be this moment right now. I, whatever your track record of mistakes or decisions or the moments you wish you had back, receive this verse out of Titus this morning. He saved you, not because of what you've done on your own, but because of his mercy. He's washed you. Listen to that. If you have come in faith to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he has purified you. You are now pure, spotless in the sight of God. He's regenerating you and he's renewing you by the power of his Holy Spirit, whom he's poured out among you, not in some stingy way, richly. He's just lavishing his grace on you, lavishing his Holy Spirit on you so that being justified, made right with God, we might become heirs. If you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're not just forgiven, you're adopted into the family. He loves you. He cares so much for you. Your image and your identity, your future, all of it is this beautiful thing that he holds so tenderly and carefully in his hands. And so please, as you receive communion, if this series has been hard for you this, this last few weeks, receive that truth of the gospel this morning. And maybe this series hasn't been so hard for you. For all of us today, what we get to do is we get to come to the table of the Lord where none of us brought anything on our own. And we get to receive the body and the blood of Christ this morning. So Jesus, I pray that you meet with your people right now. Holy Spirit, help us not to just have an encounter with something that feels good or seems right. God, would we have an encounter with you? You are the ultimate picture of truth. You are our ultimate reality. 
You are the epitome of grace in the most perfect and right way. Grace that doesn't leave us in our behavior, but a grace that calls us into a new destiny, a new future. So Jesus, would you come in this moment right now and meet us where we're at? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I wanna give you just a few minutes to commune with the Lord on your own. I'll come back up and dismiss us in just a moment. Hey, before we stand, I do just wanna pray specifically for those of you that are, maybe there's just been a, a battle personally during this series, and that can look a hundred different ways. So there's no shame, there's no condemnation in this place, but if that's you, would you just even posture your hands right out in front of you right now? We don't even have, if you just wanna bow your, bow your heads, close your eyes. Jesus, I pray that the people that are coming to you right now with an open and contrite heart, that are humble, in desperate need of your help. God, your word says time and time again that you are close to those who are reaching out in desperation for you. And so whether it's their own sexual brokenness, whether it's the sexual brokenness of someone they love, God, I pray that you would meet them with grace, remind them of what is true, and empower them to continue to walk as witnesses in the world we live in in a just super delicate blend of those two things, ever-present, representing what's true, standing on what is standing on what is right and helpful, but doing so in just such a humble and kind way. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would come even right at this moment and set some people free in Jesus' name. If they're in bondage to this or that or whatever it is, God, I'm sure they know. They know that there's a behavior that they can't walk away from. And God, I pray that you would set them free. Would they find the freedom found in surrendering to you right now in Jesus' name? Just let it, let it go at his feet. Jesus, we love you. And we need you in every single thing that we do. We thank you that you're patient and that you're kind and that you're good. Church, would you stand? I pray, God, that you would fill us with the Holy Spirit as we walk out of here today. God, would we, would we be faithful witnesses of your glory, of your good news as we encounter different people this week? I pray that as we've gone through this journey here over the last six weeks to this series, God, would you have given us practical ways to engage in conversation? Would you help us stand on what we know to be true? But would you help us do it in such a way that is so mysteriously kind and loving to the world around us that we couldn't have any condemnation lobbed at us that would stick? Help us, Jesus, be the kind of people that you entrusted with your Holy Spirit to fulfill your mission on the earth. We need you, we need you, we need you, and we love you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen.